0: Hi everyone, and welcome to a special webinar discussion by the Atlas Society. My name is Lawrence Olivo, I'm the Associate Editor here at the Atlas Society, which is the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways such through animated videos and graphic novels. Before I begin to introduce our guest, I want to remind those of you watching on Zoom, LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, whatever platform it is, Feel free to post your questions in the comment section. We'll be pulling those together to answer a few of them closer to the end of this webinar. Now, today I am joined by two of our faculty members, senior scholar, Dr. Richard Selsman, and our senior fellow, Robert Trzezinski, who will be discussing today the recently leaked Supreme Court opinion, its consequences, and a overall general understanding of abortion and roe v wade and with that i'll hand it over to rob first
1: Uh, thanks thanks the reason we're having this discussion right now is that uh you know the the ruling in uh dobbs versus uh jackson women's health organization this ruling was not supposed to come out for months uh but somebody leaked it Uh, so i want to talk i want to sort of address three issues here uh, first, I want to talk just briefly about the fact of the leak. You know how that the fact that this thing was leaked. There's some controversy over that. Then I want to talk about abortion as a right, and then I want to talk. I'm going to spend most of my time talking about the interesting implications of the the, the leaked draft of of this decision that would overturn Roe v. Wade and and uh, remove federal protections for abortion rights. Uh, so I want to talk. So just a moment about the leak itself. I, I think it is generally a bad thing because there are certain kinds of, there's a long history on this, that there are certain kinds of deliberations that are supposed to be sort of shielded from the pressures of ordinary day-to-day politics and not made into a political football. So for example, when, you know, George Washington convened the, uh, was was uh, head the president of the Constitutional Convention that drafted the constitution. One of the first things he said to everybody was, you know, basically don't talk about this. Uh, uh, don't leak this out to the press because then once you do that the press is going to have a field day and they're going to get all excited about how oh you're not doing this or you're doing that and it's going to influence the deliberation so basically you know when when the mass public when if if twitter had existed then you said you would have said once twitter gets a hold of this and it becomes a hysteria then it, it removes the ability or reduces the ability for people to make you know res- reasonable responsible deliberations on this I think that same thing applies and and has traditionally applied to Supreme Court deliberations, that they have the, you know, the public uh, oral hearings, and then they go back and they deliberate and they write their, uh, they write their opinions, and that's all done, you know, behind closed doors without uh, Twitter weighing in, without the newspapers weighing in, without that public pressure, and I think that's a good thing. Now, I'm going to say that. So I think it's it's a good thing that that's normally not subject to the normal pressures of the press. And I think in this case, one of the implications, for example, is that that's exactly what people wanted from this, whoever leaked. We don't know who leaked it or why, but one of the reasonable speculations is that the reason they did it was precisely to create that kind of um, – Create that kind of public pressure. You know, the the, the usual speculation is it was one of the uh, liberals or or people on the left who works somewhere in the in the Supreme Court system who leaked it out in the hope that this would create public pressure to get one of the conservative justices to recant that, oh, no, it's going to be such a firestorm. I shouldn't sign on to this opinion and they could somehow prevent it. I, I think they're going to be very disappointed in that expectation. Uh, but generally speaking, that's not how these deliberations should be done. However, I'm also going to evoke here a uh, Barone's law. And this is a uh, uh, Michael Barone, a, a famous commentator on politics, wrote a, a column about 20 years ago or so, and it's, it's kind of a timeless one where he said, all process arguments are insincere. Yeah, that is that people tend to get upset about the process by which something is done. The extent to which they are upset about the process generally is correlated with whether they like the result or not. So you know you, how, how upset you are that this got leaked is probably going to depend, depend a lot on what side of the issue you're on. And I think the substantive issue of you know are, is the right to abortion protected? What is the legal reasoning behind that? Those are way more important than the issue of the leak. So I want to sort of make a brief comment about the leak and let's move on to those substance issues. Now there's two things I want to cover, and then I'll, I'll we'll, we'll go back and forth with with Richard. I don't think we're going to be in deep disagreement on this uh, for a change, but um, but you know we I think we may have some different things to add. I want to talk a little bit about the right to the right to abortion, and the usual objectivist argument on this is that uh, to refer to the the difference between the potential and the actual. Yeah, you know, that a a fetus, especially in the early stages of pre- of, of the pregnancy, is very clear. A fetus is not an individual human being; it is a potential human being. It is something that will grow into a human being over a process of nine months, and so therefore, it does not have the same rights. It uh, it doesn't have the rights of an individual, separate uh, in, a human being. It doesn't have that right that it can claim against the right of uh, of the mother or, or of the, of the woman in, in whose body it's growing. Uh, so the idea that you know uh, the fetus is so dependent on the woman the of, on the mother to to provide the nutrients to provide all the material that's going to help it to grow into a child uh, that it cannot make that claim of a superior right over her right to her life, and her right over making her own. With her body. And, Historically, and, and the history of this is going to be important as we get to the legal arguments. Historically, I find it interesting that that uh, often that has been even the theological view of it. Uh, there was, I think, there's an old Hebrew rule that it's uh, uh, a child does not have a soul until 40 days afterwards uh, after conception, or in a lot of the ancient older legal precedents that that abortion is banned only after what's called the quickening. Now, the quickening is basically the point at which the mother can feel the, the fetus moving inside of her. And that happens generally at about 15 or 20 weeks. So the uh, modern idea that life begins at conception and that rites begin at conception is kind of actually, you know, despite being a theological view put forward by the Catholic church, is actually something of a new innovation uh, based, you know, uh, uh, that ra- not a, a departure from older views, and I think the older views are more sensible. The idea that at the very early stages, this is not yet an individual human being whose rights can be protected. Now, the difficulty, as I see it, uh, with uh, with abortion, the reason why this becomes an emotional issue, the reason why people find it a difficult issue, though, is that if there is a continuum there that you know, over nine months, you're going to go from a, you know, a couple of cells, you know, a fertilized, a single fertilized cell to um, a fully formed uh, infant, fully formed fetus that's capable of, of, that's about to be born. It's capable of living outside the womb. So you don't have, you know, if, 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 if the, if the fetus at the very beginning is a pure potentiality, it's something that might grow in, would be able to grow into a human being. By the time you get to the end, it is almost hundred percent there. It's like 99.9% there, you know, at at, at the very, very end of that nine months. So you have this continuum. And I think that's why people find it confusing because, you know, at the, in the third trimester what you have is essentially a fully formed, uh, a fully formed fetus that is just growing larger and stronger, but is capable of surviving. Uh, And I think that in that case, I think, you know my view is that it would be immoral to terminate a fetus at that stage um, uh, uh, except for some really, you know, f- a really important, really emergency type of reason. Like, you know, uh, there have been cases of this, like, uh, like a woman who was diagnosed with cancer uh, and, you know, the treatment was, well, we could treat your cancer, uh, but that, but the treatment, you know, the chemotherapy or the radiation would, would kill the the fetus. Or we can bring the fetus to term, but by the time we do that, you know, the cancer will progress too long and you're not going to make it. And so there are these very rare cases where those, you know, the decisions that have to be made. But again, those are very rare. Um, but I, I think, you know, that would be moral in those situations. I think it would be immoral to to terminate a, a pregnancy in the last trimester. But where I, I see the problem with getting government involved is that the, the what, exactly what we see right now, which is that there's a, a, a million and one real, religious zealots going around there who, if given the power, you know, you think of a grandstanding attorney general in, in Louisiana or Mississippi or someplace like that, if given the power to basically second guess and make decisions, uh, uh, ratify or, or, or prosecute it, individual people's decisions about terminations of pregnancy, they would do so, you know, for their own grandstanding purposes or out of their own, you know, religious convictions, overriding the decisions in in these very difficult cases where there's a, you know, a danger to the life of the mother. And I think you would end up having uh, that power be used arbitrarily. And that's why even in the third trimester, I would keep government out of it. I think it should be a matter of medical ethics and personal ethics and not of government regulation. Um, Now, we we talk about what Ayn Rand's view on this was, which is, you know, she made that argument but but potential versus the actual and she also acknowledged that there could be questions or issues in the third trimester. But I also want to make the case, make the point that most of the abortion cases we're talking about happen in the first trimester. They happen early on, they happen before 25 weeks. The, the, most of them do not happen in the late stages. So what we're really talking about is that early stage, the first trimester, when you have a, you know, a, a, a something that's developing into a human being, but clearly is not fully formed and fully developed yet and is still dependent on the mother and that's why i think her rights have to um, have to supersede have to be the the, the primary that we start with uh, her rights to control of her own body now i want to go on and transition briefly to the legal argument which is the part i find most interesting because here's the thing the draft of Dobbs that we have doesn't actually focus on so much on that issue of The metaphysical status of a of of a of a fetus and the rights of the mother. It focuses on a much broader issue, one with a lot of bigger implications. It focuses on the issue of how do we determine what rights people have and what rights can be protected uh, by the Constitution, and that's a a much much broader and more sweeping issue. It's not just about this particular case. They don't make the case that well, you know. uh, they don't make the case on the basis of, well, the fetus is an individual with rights. They make a broader case about how do you determine whether people have rights, what rights they have, and and what rights are protected. Now, the crucial issue here is the issue of unenumerated rights. Uh, so the idea is that in, in, there's a, an idea, a longstanding idea in, in, uh, in, in jurisprudence called substantive due process. And this is the idea that uh, the government can't do anything it likes to. You. It has to follow due process of law. And due process of law has a procedural element, which is you know, they have to file the right per- paperwork. They have to go through the right branch of government. They have to you know dot all the I's and cross all the T's. They have to go through the right procedures. But there's also something called substantive due process. And substantive due process says that sometimes the substance of what the government's trying to do is itself so invalid that there is no due process of law to do that thing. And so a good clear example would be the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of the press, right? So if you then have the government trying to enforce a control on the freedom of the press and trying to enforce some censorship, you would say, well, the substance of what you're trying to do imposing censorship is itself illegal because Congress can make no law. There can be no law under the constitution that allows you to do this. So therefore, the substance of what you're trying to do means that it cannot be done with due process of law therefore you know the constitution pre- prevents you from doing it now that's an easy case to make when you have something like the first uh, like freedom of speech because it's explicitly guaranteed in the first amendment uh, the tougher case with due, substantive due process arguments is the, what about something that's not explicitly guaranteed, a right that's not explicitly stated in the Constitution, but which is still so fundamental to our system of government that it needs to be protected. And that's where the unenumerated rights come in. Now, the, the, uh, the Ninth Amendment very specifically states this. They say that uh, the, the enumeration in this Constitution of certain rights does not mean to deny or disparage other rights that are retained by the people. And it's a very curious document, the, the, the very curious uh, piece of writing in, in the Ninth Amendment, because basically it's saying it, it explicitly protects rights that it does not explicitly name. So how do you how do you do that? How do you say, well, there's an explicit statement that we ha- we're protecting other rights, but we're not going to name what those rights are? Well, the way I view it is that it's an invitation to then refer back to political philosophy. And they knew what, you know, the founders knew what political philosophy they wanted us to refer to. They wanted us to go back to the natural rights philosophy of John Locke and Algernon Sidney, which was pretty universally accepted among the founding fathers. Now, the problem, as I see it, is that since then, the natural rights philosophy, the philosophy of individual rights that animated the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence was basically abandoned. By the early 20th century, it was abandoned by both the left and, unfortunately, by, by at least by a, a large segment of the right. So what you have instead is, is when, you, when people are asked, when jurists are asked now to say, well, the, they look at the Ninth Amendment, there are these unenumerated rights. When they're asked to figure out where do rights come from? There are two basic answers. The answer from the left is, well, rights come from society. And so therefore, if society thinks that you should have a right to something, you do. And that's how you get this famous formulation of the living constitution theory, which is that um, uh, rulings are made on the basis of the evolving standards of decency in a progressing society. Something, I, I think I got a little word off there, but uh, uh, you know, the idea is that as society progresses, as the social consensus changes as to what rights we have, therefore, society creates new rights for us. Now, in practice, that tended to mean, you know, whoever mixes in the social circ- same social circuses, circles as the as the justice, uh, he, he polls them. You know, the people I went to the last dinner party with, what do they think are the evolving standards of decency? And he goes with that. It, it's not, you know, that they conduct public opinion polls. And there's an arbitrariness to that, and so the rights answer was to say, "Well, we have to go back to the original meaning of the Constitution." Well, what does that mean? How do you gauge the original meaning of the Constitution? Well, the thing that I find interesting about this Dobbs decision that was leaked, and we have confirmation it was a real thing that was leaked. It wasn't. It's not a fake. It's not. Uh, you know, the the, the uh, chief justice confirmed. Yes, this is an actual draft that was being circulated. And what's interesting about it is when. In, in it, for the standard of how you determine what rights we have. The standard it gives is that they be deeply rooted in our traditions and history. Now that's an interesting thing because the founding fathers, I think intended that they be rooted in our, our concept of rights, our understanding of rights be rooted in a natural rights philosophy. And that's different from deeply rooted in our traditions and history. And you can see the difference because, you know, when the, uh, uh, when, the founding, when, when the founding fathers signed the Declaration of Independence, the stu- the, they went out and all the state governments now declaring themselves independent from the crown, they changed their constitutions and they passed all sorts of laws. And many of those laws overturned traditions. Uh, they overturned things that had lots of historical uh, uh, support for them because they were uh, contradictory to their understanding of individual rights. So, for example, one of the first bans on slavery in the English speaking world, I think it may be the first ban on slavery in the English speaking world, was passed in Vermont in 1777, you know, the year after the Declaration of Independence. But, you know, slavery was something that had lots of grounding deeply rooted in history and tradition going back thousands of years. And they outlawed it uh, because it was inconsistent with the individual rights philosophy. And uh, another example is Georgia in 1777 outlawed uh, primogeniture and entail. Now, these are rules about inheritance of property, where which were basically aristocratic rules. The idea that you had to only the basically only the oldest son could inherit a property. It was a, this aristocratic approach where you were trying to keep all the property under the uh, uh, under the oldest sons that you have. You don't di- dilute your property uh, to among all the different heirs who would claim it. Uh, and this was something that they banned in in Georgia as a way of you know getting rid of that element of the aristocratic system. And there were a number of other things they did, like establishment of religion. Another, you know, having an established church, an official church, was also something they had deeply rooted in our history and traditions that the founding fathers got rid of because of their understanding of free speech and freedom of religion. So I think that this ruling and creating that standard of traditionalism as the basis for which we decide what rights you have and don't have, this ruling, I think, kind of overturns the basic idea of the founding, which is that our rights are determined by you know, appeals to natural rights, appeals to philosophical arguments about the nature of man and the need and his need for rights. Uh, and it said what it does. And I, I think this is really interesting to me because for for many decades, there's been a prevailing dominant um, uh, conservative judicial philosophy of originalism. And originalism, the promise of it for someone, you know, from our perspective, somebody who is an advocate of individual rights, is that originalism is great if it refers us back to the original individual rights philosophy behind the constitution and the declaration of independence, but that's what, not what they're doing here. They're almost doing kind of a bait and switch. They're saying we're going to go back to the original meaning of the constitution, but as judged as a set of traditions that are based in, you know, long, deeply rooted in long English traditions. And this, you know, this, this ruling does this where it goes back to 700 years of, of, uh, of English common law, and back to 17th century jurist, uh, Sir Edward Coke, and what he wrote about abortion. And it's very much based on this idea that, you know, if it's not there in the traditions prior, if it's not, if, if a right is not recognized in deeply rooted traditions, then it doesn't exist. And there's no argument you can make that it exists. And I want to end with this observation of why would that be important? Why would that be a problem? Well, part of the problem is that the 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 Ninth Amendment and it's just declaration of unenumerated rights. Those rights are unenumerated for a reason. You know, the reason they left it so open-ended. If, if an issue was known and traditional and important at the time of the founding, they probably would have enumerated it, right? They're, leave, they're deliberately leaving it open that there may be other things that have not been contested yet, that have not been recognized yet, that are consistent with the philosophy of individual rights that are yet to be litigated, essentially, that are yet yet to be argued out. They wanted to leave that open-ended. And Roe v. Wade, the the, the ruling that, that legalized abortion, is an example of that. In fact, we tend to think of it standing on its own, but it's actually part of a constellation of rulings that happened in the middle of the 20th century, mid to late 20th century, that had to do with Basically, all the aspects of your your personal life. Your uh, had to do with sex, had to do with marriage, had to do with medical procedures. So there was uh, uh, Griswold versus Connecticut, which basically banned, uh, uh, struck down bans on contraception. There was um, uh, uh, Loving versus Virginia, my favorite title for a, uh, a Supreme Court ruling ever. Loving versus Virginia struck down bans on interracial marriage. There were a number of ones that had to do with uh, your right to consent. To, uh, to medical uh, procedures, you know, no involuntary medical procedures and uh, various other things, uh, rulings that were similar to that, this whole constellation and Roe v. Wade was at the center of that. So I think that striking down Roe v. Wade and furthermore doing it in this way that basically says, if something is not traditional, then we don't recognize it as a right, really opens up the floodgates for all sorts of potential other controls uh, on our personal lives and on our sex lives and on our, uh, our, our personal medical decisions because you have eliminated the basis for claiming any such rights. So I think I've probably gone too long, but I wanted to sort of lay out that as my perspective on on this, on this ruling and, and what's wrong with it.
2: Thanks, Rob. I, I would like to, what I'll do first is dive into what I consider the, the issue of abortion, the physiology of it and the right to it. And then kind of use that as a standard for gauging what the court has done here, but also what it's done historically. I think it's helpful to uh, go to the extremes of each position because it really goes to the heart of the matter. So so let's go to the anti-abortionists first. They say they are pro-life, but they really are not for the life of the would-be mother. And I always say would-be mother because it's not a mother until there's birth. Um, And so they're talking about the life of what prenatal uh, in uterine species like going sequentially, zygote, embryo, fetus. These are all in the womb and they're concerned with that life. And when they speak of life beginning at conception, they're not really speaking of human life. So Rob and I agree on this idea that the human being is post-birth. There's not a fully formed human being until birth. And that is what's evaded here. Now, if that side is correct, then it's murder. It's murder of a human being. Now, if you look up murder, murder is the killing of a human being by a human being. Now, the would-be mother is clearly a human being. But by the physiology of it, she's not killing a human being. She's, she's, she's killing a pre-human form. So, so there is life there. It's not as if it's not a living organism, a zygote an embryo, a fetus, they are living organisms. There's no doubt about that. So there's a huge equivocation on the idea of life beginning at conception. Potential human life begins at conception, but we're talking here about, if we're talking about murder, we have to talk about two human beings. Now, just to take this a little further, which almost no one ever does, if they're right that it's murder, then the would-be mother and the doctor must go to jail. They might even have to face capital punishment because they're deliberately murdering a human being, according to this view. Now, I, I've not heard anyone, but if they were really courageous about it, they would say this. And I, I don't think I've heard anyone on that side say all women aborters uh, should go to jail or face murder, uh, murder, face capital punishment. Uh, I, I do recall when Trump was asked during the last uh, campaign, he said the doctor should, be, when, when he flipped, I think, he, he used to be a pro-abortion, then he was anti to get the vote. But he said, uh, no, the woman shouldn't be punished. Well, that's just, that's inconsistent. If it's truly murder, then both parties, I would actually say the woman is more uh, culpable because the doctor would never see her unless she approached him and came to him with this request. Now go to the a complete other side, the side that I'm actually on, which is if you really con- if you really take the view that there is no human until birth, that human beings begin at birth, you have to be able to defend. And this is this this is cringeworthy for most most people, abortion right up until birth, abortion right up until the moment of the crowning, the cresting, the dilating, all that. I mean, it's to most people. They can't stomach it. And I think even people on the right who call, uh, not on the right, on that side who say that they're pro-choice, well, that's a non-fundamental position as well too, right? Because you don't, of course, have the choice to murder people. And if it was truly murder, no one would say I have a choice to. So what are they saying? That the mother really has a choice to control her own body. And that's my position. I think that's the liberty position would be bodily autonomy in both ways, by the way. government has no right to make you put stuff in your body or prevent you from taking stuff out of your body. I think I would include the mind as well, the things you take in and read and learn, and then the things you speak your mind shouldn't control that either. So there's a consistency there. Now, the reason I go to these extremes is I think it makes people really test their logic and test their views. And and if, if you listen over the next couple of days, you'll see it over and over again. You'll hear phrases like the child in the womb the baby in the womb. These are just contradictions in terms. The the term baby, infant, and child in that sequence, by the way, is exactly what happens after birth. So no more can you say baby in the womb than say you know fetus riding a bike down the street. It's just ridiculous. It's a mixing of terms, and no side should really be able to get away with it. I actually heard the president the other day speak of aborting a child in the womb. So, even the president, I mean, well, he doesn't mostly know what he's talking about, but lots of people talk this way. Um, I want to say something uh, also about um, that now that's called it the legal relationship to what I just said. Um, one of the most interesting things I think in Alito's decision in Dobbs is, is, and uh, Rob alluded to this, is he basically says it's not a right in the constitution and I'll get to that in a moment. But then he also has a lot on the history of abortion, not only uh, in Britain, but in the United States as well. And it's not well known, but you can get histories of abortion in America that from roughly 1800 to 1900, there were very few restrictions on abortion. So it was seen as an implicit liberty and especially uh, up until the Civil War. And um, so I I believe that all the analysis that Alito gives about, I I think he really overstates the idea that this in law at the state level and elsewhere and in court decisions was always considered a crime. That's not true. I think it's very interesting that if you trace the liberties we had economic, political, and otherwise in the 1800s and how they became eroded starting with antitrust in 1890 and afterwards, so also was women's freedom to choose eroded. So there's no um, inconsistency there. The same kind of trend in the progressive era that had government increasingly restricting people's liberties. It was also happening to women in this particular field. And so by the time Roe v. Wade comes about, it really comes about because there'd been about 50, 60 years of the state's uh, increasingly restricting a woman's right to control her reproductive function. So that, so that's what was happening. People have this idea that abortion was uh, despised, criminalized, and banned, you know, from the time the Constitution was signed. That's not true. Uh, but I also agree with Rob that you can't just resort to the history, because, of course, there's been a history of, you know, anti-interracial marriage. There's been a history of slavery. There's been a history of a whole bunch of things which are unjust. So just because it in this history doesn't mean it should be endorsed. And so Alito also and the conservatives are really grappling with half the time they want to cite precedence and half the time they don't. But if you say precedence in this case, and I think I recall Alito actually saying this in his uh, in hearings when he was being nominated, all of them say, Well, Roe is uh, decided. Roe is settled. uh, You know, I was settled law. And they all reversed on that, of course, because they probably would not have been nominated. Uh, Now, a couple of things about uh, interesting I'm seeing Carlson and others on the right saying, what's wrong with democracy? The idea that Alito's decision basically says we're going to turn this back to the states and let the states vote on it. Well, think of this. If it's truly a right, rights aren't subject to vote. That's the whole point of the Bill of Rights. The whole point of the Bill of Rights is if you have the right to free speech, it isn't conditioned by, there's no proviso saying, you know, unless a majority opinion doesn't allow you to speak. So again, you get back to first principles. If it's a right, it shouldn't be open to vote. And in that regard, I have no problem actually with the court striking down these things. I I didn't actually have much of a objection to Roe. And I actually think Roe v. Wade was wobbly on the right, because that was the decision in 1973 that created the trimester analysis. Now, the trimester analysis does have some basis in biology, but they were trying to use it to dice up the rights. And it was almost as if they said there is no unconditional right to abort. It kind of fades away as you go into the trimesters And so they set it up as, well, you have a definitive right in the first semester and then kind of in the third, second, definitely not in the third. And so they kind of deferred to states. And that's why we're back to where we are today. Roe actually allowed states to restrict abortion in the third trimester. Now, Casey, which hasn't come up yet, Casey was decided in 1992, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which the court upheld in a more mixed way, actually got rid of the trimester idea and came up with the viability idea. So now think of this, this is even murkier. Viability is defined as the capacity for the fetus to survive outside the womb. Now this too is a hypothetical because if the would be mother doesn't want the fetus outside the womb. It's a a moot point, right? So you have outsiders like guessing and judging whether some woman's fetus could survive outside the womb, and that decides whether she has the right or not. To me, that is completely unprincipled and ridiculous. But notice the conservatives are using this today in the following way. As the science gets better, as detection methods get better, As incubation methods get better, as it becomes easier to bring a a preemie, if you will, out into the world and have it survive, they're arguing for more and more restrictions on abortion, right? Suppose uh, 10, 15 years from now, um, somehow science and natal care could, you know, bring a uh, embryo to survive in the world, you know, after 10 weeks. See the conservatives would say, "Good, then it's murder at ten weeks." Uh, so it's a shame here because here's a case where science is being used against itself um, in terms of designating what 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 the being is to begin with. A couple of other things, then I'll I'll stop. I I think um, the I can think of two analogies that might help. Um, where cases where if you get gray and wobbly on the distinction, you mess things up completely. And I think that's what's happened here. So one would be economic power versus political power. It's widely been recognized that if you don't distinguish between coercive action and voluntary action, if you start calling economic activity coercive and government coercion voluntary, you mess up the whole thing and you ruin your economic liberties. Um, That would be just one example, but another example would be in the field of rights. This is very much of an issue now. Are your rights violated by people yelling at you or saying things that you consider to be hate speech? No, the objective is view is we need an objective standard here, a clear, bright line, just as we have with economic power and political power. And here it's the initiation of physical force or fraud, period, nothing short of that. And, but same thing, notice if that becomes a gray area, you have people saying that, you know, silence is violence or speech is hate. And at the same time, you know, burning down cities and looting is uh, <laughs> peaceful protesting. So, so the positions get completely reversed. The distinctions get completely muddled. And just as in economic power versus political power and the issue of rights and coercion and initiating force are muddled, I think that's what's happened on abortion. It is so muddled. Not only are they flipping back and forth between the line called birth. They're flipping back and forth between the lines of rights versus uh, you know duties and, and the, the kind of the national historical appeal that people are looking at. And um, so I, I, I conclude with, it is a right. It's a right that the court should uphold. They should strike down any law that violates these rights. And I'm very troubled that the next steps will be legislatures, legislating, and and even if the national legislature does, which I don't think it should, um, you're basically going to have legislative acts that amount to saying this is how you should speak, this is how you should assemble, this is how you should, you know, and that's not how rights should be handled. Um, I was asked the other day, well, what would be the ideal solution if it could be enacted? I suppose a constitutional amendment, but we all know that the amendment process itself includes voting. So it's a shame. Last thing I'll say is the idea that the that certain rights are not in the constitution, I agree with Rob entirely that the idea that uh, the ones not enumerated are in the ninth amendment, but we also know that for decades, the Supreme Court has basically ignored the ninth amendment. So it's pretty hard for them to trot it out now, but even so, Alito doesn't want to trot it out now. But it's it, the idea of enumeration. I mean, if, if enumerated powers was a legitimate concept, we could not have the Air Force. I mean, the Air Force is not in the Constitution either. The Navy is, the Army is, because he had an Army and Navy there. Now, why would the Air Force be legitimate? Because what the Constitution is providing for is national defense, right? So so it's necessary and proper, that's the clause from the Constitution as well, to assume that as technology improves, you would have this new capacity, you know? And so and so no one would would banish it. Well, same-sex marriage isn't in the Constitution either. And the Supreme Court upheld that in Obergefell, what, three or four years ago, Rob, I forget, maybe mm-hmm. more. Uh, so uh, um, the, we, we forget that when the Constitution was initially passed, it had no Bill of Rights because the Federalists were saying, well, listen, you can't violate these rights, so why do we have to enumerate them? There isn't anything in here giving them the power to we've enumerated what the government can do can it banish free speech no we didn't say it can banish free speech and the anti federalists said no we don't really trust this document you need to put in a list that you need you need to give a list of rights and unfortunately that led us down a road of people later forgetting how that was done and forgetting that there's a whole bunch of rights uh in this case i would say including abortion rights So I'm very troubled that this is part of, I've talked before about America becoming very illiberal and very authoritarian, and I think not just in economics, but I think this is another example where normally the civil libertarians would say, we're making progress. You know, interracial marriage, uh, contraception, um, same-sex marriage, a woman's right to choose. Uh, For whatever liberties we're losing on the economic side, the feeling was, well, at least we're gaining some on the call It the civil side. I think we're going to start seeing and we are seeing restrictions on speech, assembly, worship, right? We already have guns. I think this is just another case of the trend going in the direction of illiberalism, but on the call it on the civil rights side. So I'll, I'll stop there.
1: Yeah, there's, there's a couple of interesting things I'd like to pick up very, very briefly on that. And then okay. maybe we'll have some yeah. questions from our audience. So I think the one area of disagreement, I think, between us is I give a little more credence to the trimester analysis yeah, and to the idea that you do have this continuum. So, yeah. you know, a child that's basically one day before birth or a fetus that's one day before birth really is fully developed. And so but I, I, I see that as I think we have to recognize that moral dimension. I see it as a moral issue rather than uh, properly yeah. rather than a legal issue, because I guess like I that I don't want. The busybody bureaucrats and the zealots coming in, and then being given the power of the state to make decisions, at, at, rather than you know doctors and and um, and and patients making those decisions. Well, but me, I do think. Let me okay. say
2: this: I, I agree with. Let me just say I, I didn't elaborate on that, but I agree yeah. with you. It's almost like to me the principle is you have liberties now. If you're going to be an idiot and you're going to be irrational and irresponsible in exercising your liberties. Uh, that's your fault. But it doesn't make yeah. you a murderer. It just makes you irresponsible. And and to me, it still comes down to, is it in the self-interest of the would-be mother to do this or that? Now, yeah. if it's, if it's un, it truly is actually unsafe at the end. And I would actually say it's unsafe to her psychologically.
3: Mm-hmm. In
2: other words, your point about this really is starting to look like, a, you, I mean, just psychologically, I, I'm told and I read that it's damaging for would-be mothers, actually many of them to have any abortions, but especially late-term abortions. And I think the other issue is it takes two to tango. There would not be necessarily doctors willing to do this, but for the same reason, if you came to them and said, you know, please do a dangerous operation on me, it's, it should be perfectly within the rights of the doctors to say, no, I'm not going to do that. And I advise and, our and,
1: and, and by the way, that's a real issue. So, uh, I remember yeah. a year, a couple of years back there was, um, a guy who did these sting operations where they had this woman coming in you know, an actor basically she was actually pregnant but she was not she wasn't actually seeking an abortion she was trying to do a sting operation as she yeah. went into abortion clinics at 25 weeks or 26 weeks and said right you know I want to have an abortion and the doctors actually did turn her down yeah. uh, and it was supposed to be this big scandal but you know the actual substance of it was she was turned down or she was yeah. told look, look we want you to do psychological counseling we need to know more about what's yeah. going on with your situation before we do this yeah so I, I do think yeah that is an issue I, that's why I said I think it should be an issue of medical ethics, that a you know a doctor would look at that and say, "Look, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't be cooperating in this at this stage because I don't think it's the right thing to do." Um, but yeah, like well, I said, the this way, is different. From by the, the way, the Mississippi,
2: the, in terms of trimester, the Mississippi law to which uh, Dobbs refers uh, bans it at 15 weeks. Now, 15 weeks is like what three weeks beyond the first trimester. But isn't it interesting though? Because notice that's not the extreme position. If life (laughs) begins at conception, then that's still murder. Right. And I think what's, I think what might be interesting is if it goes, if this comes to pass and this goes back to the states. And already states are using their trigger laws and things like that. I think I heard the other day that Colorado, for example, has the most extreme view on the other side. Namely, you can abort right up until the end. Well, if you think about what Rob and I have been saying philosophically, the Colorado law is actually the most consistent one out there because it's really willing to say since this isn't murder, since this is really the rights of the would-be mother, she has the right right up until it's a human being, and I'm not sure you're going to see things on the other side. You're not going to see. Oh, maybe maybe they're completely banning at every stage. In some cases, maybe some of them will get bold because Roe's not there anymore, and they'll go that way. But but you know, apart from the legality of it, philosophically, those are the more consistent positions. Of course, I take the one that says the one woman has the right.
1: And uh, so one other showing to bring up that came up in your what you were talking about is the issue of the role of science, because I think part of the reason yeah. why there weren't a lot of bans on on, on abortion in the 19th right. century was because it was not well, a, a safe, uh, a right. widely available procedure, you know, so it wasn't something right. that uh, you know, it didn't come up as much. And I think that's an interesting example of why we have this idea of unenumerated rights, that yeah. there are going to be new circumstances that arise. Yeah.
2: Right, like the Air Force.
1: Yeah, yeah like, like, well, and and right. of course, you know, the, as you know, the the standard on that is where the Constitution, uh, the it, the standard of of uh, prevailing standard of constitutional interpretation is that when it comes to granting government powers, yeah expansive interpretations and you will know, right. you know, right. we'll be as loose yeah. as possible and, and allow yeah. you to do as many things. And oh, well, they say, they don't say an Air Force, but that's really implicit you can go ahead and do it. And then when it comes to rights, they say, oh no, we have to take the narrowest possible interpretation and anything other than that is judicial activism. So there's that anti-liberty approach to it. And um, one well, thing I find a, How right.
2: about also the, just the awesome science, the awesomeness of the science of birth control, mm-hmm. the pill. The morning after, the <laughs> pill was like 1962 or so, right? The morning yeah. after pill, all these and, other-
1: And, and this peaks. is why the actual number, I think the actual number of abortions performed in America is lower yeah. than it was before Roe v. Wade. It, it, because, peaked
2: in, it peaked in 74. Yeah. Yeah, if you see the charts, and, and, it peaked- this And it it's bird, because bird, of the widespread
1: out. availability of birth control. But the other right. thing and, I wanted to throw in and, there. And is, so I think that, Rob,
2: I think, actually think that makes the anti-abortionist angrier, because their view is- well, you could have prevented this. There's so many opportunities. Why are you still resorting to this very dangerous, seemingly barbaric method? But I think if we broadly thought of ber- phrases like birth control or a planned parenthood, I know those are dirty words to the uh, anti-abortionist, but that in a rational person's life, we should be controlling the timing and manner of the births we birth, right? And we should be planning parenthood. These should not be Arbitrary thing. These are huge decisions, right? And we should be promoting the idea that they should be done rationally, freely, you know, in a planned manner as much as possible. But people will still be unsure, you know, as to whether to uh, proceed or not, and that might mean they have late-term abortions. I think. But, they should- but, but we have, but a lot we of-
3: have uh, 15 more minutes, so I would love to to just try to okay. dive into some of the questions, guys. Okay. Um, from, Insta- from Instagram, uh, Jeffrey Wright asks political question. I'm not sure if we touched on this yet. Do you think it is a good talking point for uh, Democrats in the midterms in terms of uh, overturning Roe versus Wayne?
1: Well, uh, I, 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 I guess do. I'll, I'll, I'll do I with political stuff. Uh, I do think it's going to help them in this time. I mean, they need a lot of help, by the way, because, you know, if the if the election is about the economy or if it's about inflation, if you know, the economy is actually doing well, but it doesn't seem like it's doing well, because a lot of all the gains are being basically taken back by inflation. So if, it, if it's about inflation, then the Democrats are in trouble. If it's about foreign policy, it's not gonna be so hot for them. Uh, They need something that will energize their voters and this will definitely energize their voters. So I think this is, you know, potentially could save the Democrats from what looked like a bad midterm election. I think the consequences politically though are gonna come farther out, which is uh, Richard just mentioning Colorado has an extremely, you know, uh, uh, basically no restrictions on abortion. And Texas, I think now has one, uh, or it's a one. Maybe it's the trigger one that that would cut, kick in at six weeks, or even yeah, even earlier, and would actually. I think there are proposals out there that make abortion a capital crime. So you would have this case where you have, um, you know, somebody in in Colorado and Texas. They're not that far away. In one state, that's totally legal, and in the other state, it's capital crime. Well, that's. That's a big difference. You can talk about the difference, you know, that we should have different laws in different states and the laboratories of democracy. But the idea that you could, you know, something that's totally fine in one state will get you killed, executed by the government in another, that's a big difference. And it's going to create all sorts of horrible cases. So somebody posed on the internet, um, uh, on Twitter, somebody proposed, you know, this thing that you have two college students uh, studying at a college in Texas. One of those from Colorado, right? The, 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 one, of the, one of the girls is raped by an acquaintance on, the, uh, on a date, she gets raped. And it, she take, and, and the, the girl from Colorado, her roommate from Colorado has one of these, uh, the morning after pill, you know, this is uh, a chemical abortifacients and gives it to her, you know, it's an emergency, gives it to her and she takes it. Well, suddenly this is something totally legal in Colorado that she got in Colorado and brought down thinking it was legal. And then suddenly they're both on the hook for a capital murder charge. And that's the sort of thing that's going to arise if, if this is implemented. There's uh, In Missouri, they proposed something where a law saying, making it a crime to help somebody cross state lines in order to get an abortion. All right, so this is going to create almost Dred Scott-like levels of dis- cognitive dissonance between different states. So I think this is rather than settling this issue by sending it back to the states, I think you are going to make it way, way, way more contentious and way, way, way worse. And this is going to go on for 10 years, uh, settling the political consequences of this. Well, the question was about the elections.
2: I think it'll help the Democrats. And if they widen the argument to see the Republicans are anti-women, they'll just do that. They'll be smart to do that. It's not <laughs> a great argument, but uh, this is a loser for the Republicans, I think. And,
1: and, and maybe right. the advantage, maybe the advantage that Democrats will actually have to define what a woman is. There are other questions, Jennifer?
3: Yeah, um, on YouTube, Joe Postovi, originalism is a good thing if it enlarges liberty, the doctrine of incorporation moves in this direction, I think.
2: Yeah, I think one of the reasons originalism is popular among conservatives and those on the right is, the original system was pretty good. The original system was pretty pro-liberty. The slavery stuff was terrible, but we got rid of that in the 1860s. So, But yeah, it's not a fundamental grounding. At any point, the Supreme Court, the Judicial Review, which is uh, in the system as well, Federalist 78, should be looking at every law from the standpoint of does this uphold individual rights or not, period. Not Coke right. said this and Blackstone said that. When you think about it, they're authorities, but it is kind of an
1: appeal to authority. Um, and, and, and and one thing I'd add on that, I think that the sort of objective, standard objectivist view on, on, on judicial philosophy has sort of gravitated toward the idea that, that the kind of originalism we want is not, you know, what was the definition of this word in, in 1776, but more the idea that you, you refer back to the original principles, the original principles of individual rights. And that's the standard for, for, for interpreting the constitution and, and interpreting the laws.
3: From Facebook, Marcus Herrera asks, "What is the bigger implication for the Supreme Court now that the precedent has been set for leaking documents?"
2: Yeah. You take that one, Rob. I think it's terrible.
3: I, I, I think know,
2: uh, the 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 uh, Breyer retirement was leaked as well. So we we've had and 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 I think that actually pushed you know to get jackson in there, so the whole idea of strong-arming these people really what amounts to look at them gathering around the homes now yeah of the justices this is this is the rule of lawlessness and it's really terrible now i actually think the alito decision is lawless so they've been and they'll say that's why we get to fight back you know but the whole thing is being
1: brutalized and Made yeah physically. an eye for an eye makes the whole, whole world blind in this case yeah
3: All right. Uh, Vinko Tavkar asks, are there not cases of a perpetrator being charged with double murder when killing a pregnant woman?
2: I've heard of cases like that. And of course, it would assume that that's a human being in there. Yeah. So I, I think that's like hate speech. You should never have hate speech laws because you have free speech and hate itself is not initiating force against everybody, anybody. But now just before you strike Say a homosexual, and you say homosexual slurs. The problem is the striking, (laughs) not the slurs. And I think the same way here, you know, the idea of killing a a pregnant woman. Um, I hate to say it, but it should be. A, a single murder. It's not the murder of two people. I think Wait, it's, there's think a there's a, correct,
1: there's a correct intuition that there's something yeah. extra to it, right? Yeah. That this should be punished separately. Yeah. I mean, and, but there, the, but there, the differentiation is between a wanted pregnancy and an unwanted pregnancy. Yeah, right. So you know, if if the mother asks for the just you know uh, for the for the fetus be destroyed, then that's a, right. a very different thing than she wanted to bring this to term and you, and you killed it. And then that would be, I think there's a room for that to be a special crime, but calling it murder, it's not, there's lots of different ways you could call, you could uh, uh, severe extreme bodily mayhem or give it some, some very severe punishment uh, and recognize that without calling it murder.
2: Yeah. There's legal gradations for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
3: All right. On Instagram, Brandon, the blacksmith asks, if you look at the result, all of a sudden there's popular support on the left to actually create a law that uh, legalizes abortion, all, all abortions federally. Um, thoughts?
1: Well, it's, it's going to be a hard lift for them to pass. That is the problem, because, you know, it is an issue on which people are divided. There's not that, you know, there, there may be a, a congressional majority now. I'm not sure whether they can manage it. Um, and, you know, like I said, Richards, had made the point that the whole purpose of the ninth amendment and of the bill of rights and, and of the constitution is to remove certain things from popular vote to basically say certain fundamental rights should not be up for a vote. And, uh, so I think that that's my bigger concern is that if you get rid of that, now I wanted to mention earlier, one of the things I zeroed in on this, in this decision is that, uh, Alito has a lot of bad things to say about Lochner versus New York. Oh Yeah, this is this a total example of it. That was out of left field. Yeah, I could, this I was a like case. I, I think, in a way, the left is sort of dealing with the chickens coming home to roost because they yeah. got Lochner versus New York recognized as the right to contract, basically the right to free trade, the right to economic freedom, as a as an unenumerated right that was protected by the Constitution. The and what happened down, is a bunch to, a bunch of progressive regulations against right. business. Yeah. And a bunch of progressive jurists during the New Deal era basically got rid of Lochner and destroyed Lochner so they could make room for lots of economic regulations. Well, now I think they're going to see is that the, the, the right has said, okay, great, we're glad you agree that we can't have these unenumerated rights that the constitution is protecting. And therefore now we're going to get rid of the protections against regulations of your, of your, of your personal life and of I your think sex on, life.
2: I, on this question, I think more likely is not that Congress passes a law legalizing abortion because they'd have to get rid of the filibuster. They'd have to get up to 60 votes. Yeah. More likely is that I think you're gonna see an increasing push to pack the court. They're gonna yes. do what they did in Venezuela. They're gonna to try to add as many seats as possible to dilute the power of those five conservatives. All
3: right, Can last I- question. Uh, from Facebook, Greg Elson asks worldwide, "What is the more common position on societal norms regarding abortion?" And also referencing uh, more stringent anti-abortion positions in European countries.
2: Well, the treatment in uh, Europe is much more liberal, right, Rob? I, I think uh, abortion rights are much more. It widely depends. It
1: depends no. on where you are. So, for so example, there's just nothing recently, countries. Yeah. there was well, there was recently a case of Ukrainian women who have been raped by Russian soldiers who then got you know escaped from uh, escaped from that I think in buka and places like that and escaped to Poland where they have an extremely oh. restrictive regime on abortion so suddenly they you know some of them became pregnant by their rapists and they cannot get an abortion in Poland so you have it's it's in the more catholic countries the more conservative countries especially in eastern europe uh, that you do have some extreme restrictions uh, elsewhere in Europe. It's much more, of course, open and liberal. Um, but again, the the idea of the global consensus, you know, there's a global, you, you will rarely find a global consensus in favor of liberty on a, lot, a whole lot of issues. Uh, if you want to ask that question about freedom of speech, right, there's, May far fewer protections for freedom of speech anywhere except where they, in the US, we are, our First Amendment is a much stronger protection for freedom of speech than anybody else has in the rest of the world. Most of the rest of the world has taken for granted. The government has certain powers to regulate uh, people's speech. So, you know, you, for the same reason, you can't just go by, oh, it's tradition. Uh, somebody pointed out, you know, uh, Alito cites Edward Koch, 17th century English jurist about the traditions about abortion. And somebody pointed out, well, you know, Edward Koch also wrote about how to conduct witch trials. <laughs> you know, so you just go by tradition, you'd have to, have to accept witch trials as traditional. So you don't just go sorry, by tradition and you don't go by a global poll.
2: But something else I would predict is just as after Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion, Right. Um, the shift went toward people saying, on both sides, by the way, Republicans and Democrats, abortion's okay. I mean, the numbers, if you look at them up every year, more and more, it's now more than a majority. People think abortion's okay. Now, that's interesting. Now, if you reverse this, I think it's going to go the other way. I think this is going to cause such animosity and such antagonism that people are going to start going the other way and saying, uh, I'm also against abortion. Um, so that's kind of a paradox, right? In, 17, in 1973, if you ask conservatives, it's just going to make people more or less uh, favorable toward abortion. They would have said less. They would have said there's going to be an array of abortions and people are going to be pissed. That's not what happened. The number of abortions plummeted amidst the freedom, obviously. Uh, and that was a paradox to people. And so if that's reversed, imagine how much more illiberal we're gonna become. People in their own opinions will become less favorable to uh, women's freedoms. I worry about that.
3: All right, well, that brings us about up to time. I guess I would only add that uh, if I was forced to try to find a silver lining in all of this, um, uh, this very dark cloud, it would be that uh, this has the potential to unleash a huge wave of technological and medical Innovation uh, to e- improve even the birth control options that we have, mm. yeah. and also um, provide new solutions for women seeking to manage their lives and, and terminate pregnancies uh, in a way that may yeah. be beyond beyond the uh, the judges and the politicians and and uh, relegate this to to their sole discretion. So that's something that we can all hope for. So. Thank you, guys. This was a really uh, spectacular conversation. Um, thanks all of you who joined all of you who asked questions. Um, if you are enjoying our programming, please consider supporting the Out Society with a tax deductible donation. I will be back in three hours i 'm going to be talking to Buck Angel. He is a transsexual activist and educator. Um, you guys know I had Kara Dansky who wrote the Abolition of sex. Very critical of the transgender activist community. So um, I'm going to invite uh, an actual trans person on to um, to provide a, a slightly different perspective. So I hope you'll join us for that. Thanks, everyone. Thanks,
2: Rob. Thanks, uh, thanks everyone. For- thanks everyone. For-